Hey, this is David Greenwald. This is Dom Sinicola. And this is Pretty Little Grown Men, the Podfectionists. So we're talking about episode four. four of the series, Pretty Little Liars, the Perfectionists. Uh, I really like this one. What did you think? I enjoyed it, too. Um, I think uh, up until this point, I was feeling pretty critical of the TV show, but um, something dawned on me while I was watching it, and that is uh, if you think about it like a 1940s uh, noir film, uh-huh. it all of the melodrama, all of the things that feel a little uh, a touch exaggerated, it all sort of fits into place. Um, recently, I watched the movie detour which is a 1945 noir film by edward Ed, edgar g ulmer and uh this for some reason this episode just felt like that that movie um and i enjoyed it quite a bit yeah gotta be honest i was huh i was thinking about uh noir because the new uh the thing that replaced filmstruck which is the criterion mm-hmm. collection like um they're streaming channel right columbia Columbia noir yeah there's the columbia noir collection and somebody was which is awesome uh the director rian johnson was just talking about how wonderful it was on twitter Mm -hmm. so i was like "Ooh, that's intriguing he was like every movie is 70 minutes it's gritty it's hard-boiled it's heaven yeah it's like oh okay yeah the criterion channel is friggin awesome um uh i highly recommend it it's very affordable um i think it's like 8.99 a month right um and it has it's 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 gonna have all the classics you could ever want. Um, it's not available on PlayStation Four yet. Yeah. So how am I supposed to watch it? That's why I got a Roku box. <laughs> oh, okay. That's smart. We were talking before we started the podcast about the new uh, the new Disney Plus streaming service, which is coming out, and that's gonna mm-hmm. be like six ninety nine, and maybe they will merge with Hulu or whatever yeah, because they, they own ABC and it's this yep. whole thing. And it's like. We're going to go through, I feel like we're going to go through this whole streaming Netflix revolution. And what's going to happen is we're all just going to end up spending a hundred bucks again every month to have cable. (laughs) Right. Right. It's just going to be a fucking on demand. I was telling Rebecca about uh, buying the subscription to Criterion Channel. And, you know, we have, so right now we currently have um, Netflix, HBO Now, Hulu. Right. Uh, Amazon Prime, and then oh, uh, well, you guys are all swagged out. Well, I have, and I also have, and then I have a Roku box, which I bought specifically so I could get uh, Shutter, which is a um, horror streaming service, which I highly recommend. It's very good. That's owned by AMC. Uh, so I got Shutter, um, Canopy, which is a streaming service that you get with your library card, right? Um, that it has uh, all of A24's films. It has a ton of Hitchcock stuff. Uh, it has all of Frederick Wiseman's films. And then um, I have a Stars subscription that I got through through Paste, uh, which has a, a huge smattering of films, including, for some reason, a ton of Godzilla films. Oh, those are awesome. Yeah. Stars, Stars is actually, I think... And a very unheralded streaming service. Yeah. Um, and now here comes the Criterion. So 
that's that's all of it. Now, if I want Disney, I can add. I guess I can have all the Star Wars, Marvel, uh, Pixar movies all in one place if I want to stream those. But yeah, adding up all of that, that's probably like a hundred dollars a month. Man, just I hate it. Just like charge me like. 30 bucks a month to have access to everything. Let's call it a day. Mm-hmm. I don't want to deal with these multiple channels. I don't want to deal with any of this stuff. And if, I don't know, part of the streaming thing, the fact that everyone is doing it and now everyone is trying to make 5 trillion shows, mm-hmm. like the people who are running HBO now, I think, like HBO got has new ownership, right, in the last few years? Oh, maybe. I, I remember reading some some article basically saying that you know HBO used to be very tightly curated and the whole idea mm-hmm. was like it's not TV it's HBO and now they're going to be producing more because they have to keep up with Netflix right. who has 5 trillion dollars and are making every TV show ever mm-hmm. and it's just too much stuff and it's like when this happened to music and you could suddenly get every album of all time on your phone like I welcomed it cuz you can sit there for a half an hour and listen to a record right but if there's now 20 hours of TV and you know and then you have a hundred new shows or whatever it is it's just like how i can't i don't even i don't know what to watch i can't keep up with anything it's it's crazy man like i really enjoyed the early days of netflix when they had like five shows and you could watch all of them and now it's like you're doing original movies like i hate the this is me being an old person but like i hate the lack of event feeling that comes out when there's a movie that debuts like disney's gonna have a live action like Lady and the Tramp movie that comes out on this channel. It's like, so it's just going to be out there and I don't have to do anything to get it. And it's just there. Like, I don't care. Yeah. Well, you know, I mean, it makes it really unexciting to me. No, it's true. It's, it's hard. It's hard to understand exactly what's coming out on Netflix at any one time. I mean, uh, there's something to be said about, uh, Amazon prime, which is literally the worst navigable streaming site that has a, a huge wealth of, of, of choices on it but uh netflix it's like you know they'll release uh like they just released a a, a jc shandor movie starring oscar isaac and ben affleck that they just dumped on the service like one weekend and it's like right you know it's, it's like, like you might have heard of it maybe yeah everything becomes sort of straight to video mm-hmm. it's like i don't know how to reconcile it because i like netflix and i want to watch things day and date i like the idea of like something comes out and i can watch it on my on my tv and that's great mm-hmm. you know i'm a parent i'm not going out to the movie theater every week but there's just something about it that i think the combination of the oversaturation and the fact that it's just kind of there that it's just like it becomes and you don't know it's coming mm-hmm. like things just there's just new things all the time and it's not really necessarily even marketed right. like i didn't really know about this movie you know stuff is just dumped out unceremoniously oh yeah and there's something about it that is just super deflating to me in in the way in like an opposite way from like a surprise album where i'm like oh a new album by beyonce or whoever i'm excited to stop what i'm doing and listen to this right. but it's like you can do that because i can put it on and go about my day yeah whereas some you know netflix is like here's 10 new tv shows here's like five new movies whatever yolo i'm just like oh all right i guess i'll watch none of this that's that's see, that's a really insane thing so if you think about like beyonce dropping a new album what what you automatically think about is that she has such complete control over every facet of distribution from inception to release that she can do something like this and it doesn't hurt her bottom line. But if you think about like, well, it creates an event right. in a way that putting something out on Netflix, it does not, it creates like a void. Well, that's the thing is then you think about Netflix where you have uh, like 
you have fucking uh, Alfonso Cuaron, uh, the Coen brothers, releasing movies, Martin Scorsese coming up, releasing, like, the, the biggest filmmakers, releasing movies on Netflix, and what they're given that is, uh, Noel Baumbach, that is extremely uh, attractive is they're given a ton of money and complete creative freedom. But what they don't have is any control over distribution. And that's where it feels like Netflix is just sort of saying, like, well, we're not going to bother you uh, because we can afford to give you as much money as you need and just let you do whatever you want to do. But also it's like we're not going to if, – if we're not confident in this product, we're not going to do anything in order to actually, like, market it. You know, they, they buy a theater in, in L.A. where they can show, what, show whatever they want, which is like, yeah, they're going to show prestigious stuff in 70 millimeter like Roma. But at the same time, it's like who – like, how many – fucking people watched Buster Scruggs. We don't know. Right. And it's just like, the, right. it's There's just like, no who, way. how many people actually remember that movie is actually on fucking Netflix right now? Right. And like the lack of, you know, not everyone is a, who goes to movies is a box office geek, obviously, but just like, you know, for me, someone who was just growing up reading the calendar section of the LA times every week as a kid, just to read about records or about movies or whatever, just being interested, you know, you see what's on the weekend box office. You're right. like, oh, this is the cultural event. This is what people are interested in. Maybe I should go check this out, you mm-hmm. know? So there's, it's like a weird moment in culture maybe. And I don't know how much of it is. It just feels like a really big shift in the last couple of years that now that they're doing these original movies and that has happened really quickly, mm-hmm. it was not happening at all. Like, right. A, a few years ago. Yeah. Uh, and it's hard for me to gauge as like someone who's not a culture writer anymore and has a, almost a three year old, like, did I suddenly get really old or is this like a weird cultural shift that I like that actually does feel deflating and a bummer. Like I saw all these TV critics recently writing about that show, uh, the Santa Clarita diet mm-hmm. and everybody being like, you know, the show's in its third season and, like I read two or three reviews that are like, this is like a charming, delightful show and no one really seems to talk about it. And it's kind of buried in the list of Netflix shows. Yeah. And, you know, it's a good TV show that if it was on CBS or whatever, you know, more people would be watching and talking about. And we have no conception of if other people are watching it or not. You can only judge based on social media chatter. And it just sort of creates this weird black black box you oh know, yeah of like what is culture what is even going on uh and i guess that can bring us back around to the perfectionists which we should probably get into finally <laughs> um well, i i saw a lot of people were a day late on this podcast because we didn't couldn't do it yesterday yeah um but i saw a lot of people on social media talking about this show because of emerson great should we get into that fantastic well i wanted to mention uh, real quick uh this episode was uh directed by roger cumble and uh one of the uh nice uh discoveries that we made while while looking at roger cumble's uh filmography is that he directed cruel intentions and what's crazy about this um about this new series i think more than pretty little liars is that like they're really bringing on these sort of like i don't know like uh like teen drama old hands Right. Uh, I mean, we have last week we had the, the guy who wrote the episode was a guy who got nominated for uh, we didn't check up on this. We don't know if he won, but got nominated for an Emmy for writing an X-Files episode. So it's like they're finding these these like old uh, like TV go bys who are who have a lot of experience with not only teen drama, but like 
genre TV. And it's just, it just feels like this TV show is just like finding all the right people to make a very um, dependable streamlined version of the TV show that they want to make. Right. Yeah. It's interesting. I feel like there's a lot of different pieces of the show like this episode, especially toward the end um, had a lot of that old pretty little liar spooky feeling. Mm -hmm. And we were, or we were just commenting the last couple episodes, like it's not really a scary show. It's like, you know, somebody dies in the first episode, but okay. There's not a whole lot of like, you know, horror Mm -hmm. movie haunted house kind of vibes. And this episode brought back some of that tone uh, toward the end where Mona is going into the uh, the workman's, uh, workman's house and finding all the, you know, the newspapers up on the wall and you're feeling like the claustrophobia and the paranoia. Mm-hmm. And you're like, oh, what's going on? This feels like Pretty Little Liars. <laughs> yeah. And Allison going through uh, Taylor's um, mobile home. Right. So Allie, I mean, the show is... I really like this episode and trying to feel out like where in the arc of the season we are because it's episode four. So we're getting into the middle of the show. Yeah. And this episode I thought did a nice job of continuing to move the plot forward and creating some mystery and giving the characters having some really great drama with pretty much all the characters and just sort of uh, raising the emotional stakes a bit or setting up the characters to be in a new light, to be more sympathetic. Like I really was interested in the, in the perfectionist, this episode, Yeah, a lot goes on with them. You're starting to, for me, I'm feeling a lot more um, empathetic toward them and connected to them. Yeah. You know, I, uh, it was kind of bittersweet because I was really on board for them finally trying to um, sort of confess their secrets to each other, which they couldn't quite do except for Caitlin. This is, this is kind of when the episode lost me, to be honest, is when Caitlin uh, says, I'm the rat because I told people about you being the famous person whose dad was a big criminal um, to Ava. She said that to Ava. And like you said, like, anybody with fucking Google could have figured out that Ava was who she was. And so Caitlin taking responsibility for that. And then subsequently Ava getting really pissed off at Caitlin. It felt pretty disingenuous in the same way that I kind of felt like when, um, Dylan confesses to Andrew that he had a, um, and I guess what I don't get about this, about Dylan's secret, is that did he have a one-night stand with Nolan, or did they have, like, a affair? I think it seemed just like a one-night stand. Yeah, which is, like, if that's the case, then why is Andrew, like, getting so pissed off? Especially when Andrew says, like, pretty specifically, we decided to be um, monogamous, and the one thing that I said that was, was that I wanted honesty. So it's, like that to me implies that they got together and they were kind of like also dating around. And I just, I don't, I don't really buy that Andrew would be so pissed off at this one thing that happened to Dylan. Oh, I I totally disagree. Really? Yeah. I mean, we know in the context of their relationship that they're about to move in together, that it's, that they're exclusive. But they, aren't they already moved in together? No, they're like about to move in together. Oh. And this is why Nolan is like, oh, well, you better get your fun in before you, you know, move in with your boyfriend. Oh, when they, when they, first when they, sucked. when they hook up. 
Oh, so the oh, so the basically that like they were already monogamous and and yeah, I mean basically he cheats Dylan. on them right before they move in together. Oh, okay, and then that, keeps it a secret for all that, this time. No, that's, yeah, that's a that's a bigger deal. That's true. Okay, I was under the impression that they like, just had like a had a hookup and then. Um, no, it's specifically. I mean, that's why I think. Um, uh, what's the boyfriend's name? Andrew. Andrew. Yeah. Andrew says, you know, he just wanted to to prove that that he could do it and you mm-hmm. knew that and you, you did it anyway, mm-hmm. you know, and it's, it's totally right. If you go back to that scene, it's uh, Nolan like exerting his power, exerting his charisma. Yeah. Okay. That makes a lot more sense then. Um, what I don't understand about the Nolan character and I sort of don't care because he's dead and whatever. Right. If this guy is trying to like, basically just deal with the pressure of his mom and his sort of place in the school and um, wanting to date Ava and help his sister deal with whatever, you know, then why is he like setting up all this stuff to essentially either be a jerk for its own sake or to like collect blackmail material on, uh, on Dylan so that he'll write him papers or whatever, you know, it's like he has these aspects where it seems like maybe he, is an okay guy or trying to do the right thing. But then it's like, well, you seem like pretty shitty character actually. So yeah. he's like sort of a confusing that kind of, it's, it's kind of confusing to me what his motivations are, what he was trying to do, but you know, he's not on the show. So I guess it doesn't matter, <laughs> but it is well, like, that, that it leads, is a, like, it is a really messy character to me. But that leads to then Mason, this new, this character who is kind of like for the time being the immediate villain, uh, who, has some sort of um i don't know resentment towards the perfectionists and but we're not quite sure what he wants right or or what his deal is right or if he's just trying to take advantage of a situation right where he i mean because he knows everyone's secrets Mm -hmm. he's got he's you know he was the guy who got the box of stuff and knows everything Mm -hmm. what is sort of I don't know what to make of that character, but what I liked about it versus how pretty little liars would have handled it in like a way that happened over and over. And so it became predictable, you know, the perfectionists are like, Oh, maybe he killed Nolan. And they're like, then they're like, eh, maybe not, you know, who right. knows? And they don't just like rush to the, the conclusion of like, this is it. And we have to expose them. Like, you know, they have the, it's complicated because Caitlin tries to record him and then is flummoxed basically. Mm-hmm. And, it sort of becomes the way that she reacts to that is not in a way of like, well, I still think he did murder. Right. You know, it's more just like, "Eh, well, I got to worry about my, my other stuff, you know, just like the urgency around part of the, part of the issue with the show, I think is the urgency around like someone did a murder. Mm -hmm. Oh yeah. That that's like a big deal. Mm -hmm. There's a killer on the loose (laughs) and right. But but, but what's funny is that like, then you have, scenes where uh and i kind of and i kind of loved the this scene uh which surprised me actually um when uh ally confronts dana booker and is basically just like so so i guess you're still you're still doing this like murder investigation thing are you right which is just like even ally is just like who who are you and you're you have some sort of jurisdiction in order to solve this murder case like you're so out of your element yeah what is even going on yeah i really liked Allie in this episode i like getting to see her 
just all all the scenes with her and with Moda and just like watching what the show wants to make of these characters and you know I I feel like these actresses took this took these roles like I feel like they wouldn't have taken them maybe unless they thought that these characters were actually going to get some kind of richness you know like they weren't just going to keep doing this yeah. uh, just I'm, to keep playing this I'm characters sitting here forever. nodding my head because yes I agree because yeah. uh yeah, I mean, we. I think that you know one of the things that we're kind of maybe at first uh, really struggling with is this idea that like so Mona, so Allie and Mona are supposed to be cool, even though Allie, even though Mona killed Charlotte, and we're supposed to be okay with the fact that Allie left her kids and left Emily to come up to move across the country. But it's like what the reality of the situation is, is that, you know, maybe we have to sort of come to terms with the fact that Allie and Mona are still in like very bad places in their lives. Right. And right. that Mona is still dealing with dealing with a lot of uh, um, mental illness problems that Allie basically she's probably dealing with the fact that these ki- two her two kids who she loves who she gave birth to are not actually biologically her kids and that uh you know what does that mean especially when we learn in this episode big you know big spoiler finally revealed that her and her and emily are getting a divorce and that emily is moving on with her life and yeah i want to get into this for a minute because one of the things in the last couple seasons of pretty little liars was the show's decision to bring together these sort of original couples or these sort of very much like fan wanted couples. And I guess Emerson happens in the books, right? So there's like justification for it or a, a basis for it. But something that really, one of the things that bothered us about the, you know, the show made several decisions that were really problematic. You know, yeah. one being uh, Arya and Ezra, obviously, and that's been talked about by by many critics. But the way that they set up Allison and Emily is because, you know, one of the villains, like, does this uh, traumatic uh, thing to mm-hmm. Allie and impregnates her yeah. with Emily's eggs, which she stole. I mean, the whole thing is like just this fertilized by Ren, who's yeah, dead. who's 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 murdered. So the whole thing <laughs> is like just you know beyond slasher movie, like well into like you know just serious sick behavior, mm-hmm. and the show is trying to take that and spin it into let's tell our young viewers that this is so wonderful that these characters are going to get together and finally, finally they're back together. Yeah. Yeah. But, but this is the reason, right? This, this is what brings them together. And it's like, I really liked having those characters together. I thought that their scenes together were great and the chemistry was there. So I liked that. I liked that they ended up together, but the way in which it was done was so like poisonous Mm -hmm. and horrible and traumatic. Yeah. And not really dramatic just not really dealt with in a way that at all seemed healthy. Right. No, no, and no. I don't think the show, the, the way it's setting them up to be split up now is about trust issues, mm-hmm. but that wasn't, it, it seems like it feels like, you know, maybe they should, maybe the show just doesn't know how to try to deal with the situation it put them in, which seems like it would be a lot more of a, 
an unhealthy thing in their relationship, like a, a traumatic thing for them to have to grapple with and, and, or not grapple with. Yeah. Yeah. And so finally we get some sort of like realistic take on their relationship, which is that, you know, maybe they shouldn't be together. Maybe that, you know, as far as like, I mean, we forget that they're still really young, that they're still like in their early twenties, I think, or mid twenties. I I just find it unbelievable as a parent that being speaking as a parent that Allie would be like, let me go move across the country to be in denial about my divorce Mm -hmm. and leave my kids. Like it's one thing to go get a fresh start, but you're going to just give up your custody of your kids basically to go be a TA at, and do grad school. Like that just didn't, I don't know. It's, well, no, it may, I mean, it makes does sense. It, if, does it speak to the character though? I think, I think it makes sense if we accept that Allie is not as uh noble, a helpful, mature character as we think that she is, that right. she's like actually extremely broken. And, um, you know, that she she is willing to abandon her kids because she probably feels much of the trauma that she from the fact that she, that she like knows that this you know extreme violation occurred and brought her and Emily Emily together she she hasn't completely recovered from the trauma of everything that happened in Rosewood and probably neither has Emily they got together when they were both extremely vulnerable people. You know, and now that they're probably now, that especially the Emily, Emily is probably maturing, and is at a point in her life where maybe like nothing traumatic is happening to her on the regular, and so can maybe have some clarity in that situation. While Allison's solution is to become completely and utterly involved in another fucking murder mystery, right? Which is her, like, which is just like such a like we've talked about this already before, but like such a traumatic response to the cycles of trauma uh, and she's just becoming completely enveloped in, in it again. I think that it makes perfect sense if we are willing to accept that Allison is still an extremely broken character who needs a lot of growth and that probably should not be mentoring these fucking kids. Well, yeah, yeah neither should Mona. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think we do have to accept that we are watching a melodrama. Mm-hmm. You know, because the Absolutely. the show does get there. It does bring up these these serious issues, uh, and sometimes it doesn't. Sometimes it deals with things well, but sometimes it just kind of leaves things alone yeah. or skates over them and doesn't really want to. You know, it doesn't want to become uh, Law and Order SVU. Right. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, it wants to remain like something that is uh fun and sexy and you know not not like a traumatic murder drama essentially mm-hmm. with like a lot of like i don't know svu actually i've ended up watching a lot of it because my wife watches it and you know this show's been on five million years right it's an extremely well-made show oh, that yeah. deals with this stuff this kind of these terrible crimes you know in extremely serious dark compelling ways mm-hmm. and you compare that to pretty little liars which just like or the perfectionist, I should say, which uh, I think wants to have a much looser grip in this season on those issues, and um, I think it wa- it's it did a good job in this episode of making the emotional stakes and the emotional problems of the perfectionist really come to life mm-hmm. and feel authentic. Uh, I do agree with you on the Caitlin Ava exchange where it was like she's talking about this situation that we didn't really see play out. In yeah, the context of the show, right. we don't really know how heavy an issue this is. Mm-hmm. 
and for Ava to be like, how dare you Google me and figure out who I actually was. No one could have possibly Googled me before, even though I'm like a YouTuber now. Like, I don't know that the whole thing was like, I appreciated the drama of the moment, but like, you know, it's just one of these things where you have to suspend your disbelief a little bit. Yeah. Um, Although we did, uh, we can finally reveal that we 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 met Ava's dad. Uh, that was something that we couldn't talk about openly when we went, did our site our, our site visit. Well, or, we can't say anything more beyond that, right? Because we can't say anything about what's going to happen to him. We definitely should not say anything. Do we even know what's going to happen to him? Uh, we sh- we can't even, <laughs> we can't even get into it. No, I want to be respectful. We can't even. Well, we can't no, even get I mean, into it. But we got to meet the actor. Yes. Uh, who who was really nice and uh, shows up for the first time in this episode. Yeah. And that's um, all we can that's all we can say about that. Really? I don't think we can. Yeah, we can't say anything. We can't say we shouldn't say anything else. Okay. True. But he appears in flashback in this episode, <laughs> and we yes. get a sense of Ava. He's a very nice person. I talked to him about movies uh, in the brief time where we were sitting in a yeah in chairs, just sort of waiting around, which is what you do on sets all the time. Great dude. Yeah, he was very nice. He t- he asked us about our opinions about movies and music, and we were very open with him, and babbled for a little while. Yeah, that's true. Um, but otherwise, I mean, like, the, what's what's great about the about uh, the show now is it's 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 friggin' on rails. It's just like it's it's coasting, man. It's it's doing what it needs to do to get from one point to another. Like we're building the plot, we're building the characters. I don't know. I mean, it it feels like a a really great one of those transitional. Uh, the episodes in the mold of Pretty Little Liars, where we get all the information we need to. We need to move the plot along. We're we're we're, we're doing well right now. Right. We have plot. We had feelings. We have a cliffhanger. Mm-hmm. We have Allie finding uh, Taylor's trailer, yep. and then Taylor locks her in. Yeah. That shit's crazy. What what a weird response. That seems like such a panicked response. Like oh. Fuck, fuck, I gotta get out of here. I'm just gonna lock you into my fucking right, trailer. Right, right. Like, what's she gonna do? Set the trailer on fire? That's my first thought. Was so she's gonna, she's gonna kill blow the trailer. Allie. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Just, just light the trailer on fire. How, how wild would it be if this show just killed off Allison next week? I don't think they will. Of course they won't. It'd be pretty wild. Uh, yeah, they've got her under contract. But uh, that would be some balls, like, super ballsy move. Like, just fucking kill off one of the main characters in some sort of like weird panicked move from be, this like Anslayer character that we barely know. It would be wild. I wonder one of the things that one of the illusions that comes up in this episode is the Wizard of Oz books. Yes. That are in that Allie finds in Taylor's house in her mm-hmm. house uh, formerly Taylor's and brings them over to Claire Hotchkiss who's like oh, I don't want that shit. Yeah. Keep it in her house. Whatever. It's fine. Uh, and of course Taylor has left clues in the books about the wilderness around them, Mm -hmm. uh, in these books. And I grew up reading all those books and really loved them. So I was pleased to see them come up as like a, a touchstone in the episode. And I'm not sure how that plays out into the themes of the show around surveillance and perfectionism. If there's something to it, uh, or if it's just sort of like a, just a nice little touch. We learn a little bit more about uh, Mona's involvement in the Beacon Guard system, mm-hmm. which is, I guess, what we thought, which is that she developed this 
powerful algorithm for their admission system, but that they decided to having, I guess, having propriety over it, decided to edit it, but barred Mona out of the system so that Mona couldn't see that they were messing with her algorithm. Right. But this is all one of the things that I like about what they're doing with Mona is that we know as the viewer that she's involved in this much deeper thing than what she is telling Allison. Mm -hmm. Right. Right. And so all the stuff she's saying to Allie and she's a deceptive character anyway. So all the stuff she's saying to Allie and the things we're learning, it's more fun to me to, and this is how I felt in PLL too. It's more fun to me to watch the show and think, is this honest or is this like something else? Is mm-hmm. this cloaking her real motives? Right. And every time I felt like that was happening in pretty little liars where I mm-hmm. felt like, Oh, I'm sensing that this is a, a thing and there's something else behind the other door. And it's like, it ended up the th- thing I thought would maybe happen ended up being abandoned or never came to fruition or whatever. Right. So I don't want to sort of get my hopes up that, you know, whatever, but I do feel like the show showed us the stuff in the first episode for a reason so we could feel like Mona is a pretty unreliable narrator um, and that her relationship with Allie is not necessarily built on honesty. And it's, it's certainly more fun for me to watch it thinking that than thinking this is completely straight up and they're mm-hmm. forming an alliance. Which is in direct contrast to, I think, how the perfectionists are portrayed, which is they are they seem uncompromised they seem extremely believable and uh, honest right and i don't think that that this is going to happen this season but if this spinoff is going to follow the mold of pretty little liars which is the the quickest way to develop tension between characters is to in in future seasons have one of the perfectionists become compromised just like you know pretty little liars would be um we don't really have that kind of, I mean, you you could, a, a big, a big twist would be if one of the perfectionists turned out to be bad, if they turned out to be an actual rat as opposed to their perception of what a rat is. Right. Well, know. and that's a level of it too, because we don't know who was out doing murder. Hmm. We still, I mean, again, it comes back to the whole thing of like, this show doesn't seem to be super worried that there's a killer on the loose who <laughs> murdered a guy. Nope. You know, and the characters are like, I need to cover my ass and not go to jail as opposed to. And they're like, oh, yeah, we need to find this guy's killer. Yeah, that's definitely our number one which, priority. Which, which is like, weird. Because mm, Mason, like, like Mason, who's who I'm pretty sure didn't kill Nolan. He doesn't even seem concerned that the, the these three people that he's fucking with might have killed Nolan. Right. He's just like. I need you to help me out. I'm going to take advantage of the situation. Yeah. Yeah. He, he has no sense whatsoever that they could have, you know, been the murderers. Yeah. So who, like who do these people actually think murdered this guy? And why aren't they more afraid of this shit? Right. I mean, it just, I think we just have to deal with a certain level of surrealness of this show (laughs) and just a certain (laughs) level of not even magical realism, but just like detachment from reality. Yeah. And that's that, and just take the, the take it on its own terms, which is fine. It's just like it's difficult to watch something like that that sort of sets it up as sets itself up as a mystery, because you have to have some level of rule making or or organization, or everything just becomes like soup, you know. Well, I think you could, you could probably, if we if we really want to go down this path. Um, 
you could say, you know, if if uh, a lot of the sort of cultural touchstones that inform this TV show are truly as pervasive as as we think they are, and the and as we've given the or been given the impression that they are, then you know, like if you think about like Hitchcock movies, well, Hitchcock movies especially, but even noir movies, like in many ways, you know, the point is that people face the consequences of their actions and that they're sort of living in this extremely bleak post-war universe. But at the same time, all of these movies have this idea of a very claustrophobic uh, moral world where um, people must deal with the consequences of their actions, not in some sort of greater context of abiding the law, but this sort of like much smaller claustrophobic context of if I make this bad decision, I'm going to deal with the direct consequences of those, of those actions. Right. You know, and I think that this TV show gives that impression of, of being in that sort of, uh, use the word a lot, claustrophobic universe. And we've talked about this before where it's like, you know, you can get super annoyed that like the police aren't involved with this high profile murder, or you could take it for what it is, which is that, this this like campus exists in this fucking enclosed universe right absolutely which is extremely weird yeah it know? is weird but i'm willing to go with it yeah. you know i'm enjoying it yeah. i, I want to i have two ideas about the show uh or maybe just one we'll see how the first one goes mm-hmm. but um this episode i think what it was trying to do with the actual perfectionists was to get into the theme of perfectionism and what does it mean to admit you made a mistake? Mm-hmm. Cause these are characters who are, you know, they want to be an Olympic gold medalist. They want to be this, uh, you know, famous cellist or whatever and are dealing with a lot of pressure to get there. So it is this huge emotional moment for them. And Ava sort of already dealt with the humiliate public humiliation, mm-hmm. but it is this emotional moment for them to be able to admit I made a mistake. I'm the person who did this. I'm right. not, a saint, you know? Right. And so I thought that was, that's really effective theme building. And the other thing I thought about was the idea of perfectionism versus surveillance and the idea Mm. of secret keeping. And I think one of the themes of the show so far has been like, there are no secrets, dummy. You can't keep a secret. Right. It's no longer possible. That's, that's, that's a really good point. I like that a lot. It's, it's true. You can't, um, you know, speaking as I did about the perfectionist being compromised, it's like you can't. I don't understand how you could, how you can not be compromised, or at least feel like you are being compromised constantly. Where any secret that you hold is somehow makes you culpable. Where you know, and maybe that speaks to what Caitlin did, where she feels like she's the rat because she did this sort of nebulous thing towards Ava's um, reputation which doesn't make any sense, but it's like if you're constantly living under the threat of being exposed, then you're going to feel like every sort of transgression is makes you culpable for being like this bad person, this rat or, or deserving of punishment. Right. Right. Yeah. That's if you're striving for perfection, every minor error, you know, you put a lot of weight on that, Mm -hmm. you know? Uh, And we see Ava in her Vogue video, 
in the previous episode, really trying to own up to that and being like, we look perfect or whatever, but we're not and we're struggling and blah, blah, blah. You know, so she is like on a different emotional track than the other two, mm-hmm. which I think is really interesting. Oh, absolutely. Um, and that's why it feels like her response is a bit overblown mm-hmm. where it's like Ava typically seems to have a pretty uh, broad perspective on things. And, and and her response feels pretty hypersensitive to something that I don't even I mean, it's like it feels like she's looking for a scapegoat and she found one in Caitlin when Caitlin admits this stuff. And so she's just like, it's your fault. It's your fault that I'm experiencing my, that my reputation is experiencing the fallout of what my dad did. Right. And I think part of it is her just being emotional about this, uh, this gift that appears in her room mysteriously. And she's like, is my dad back? What's going on? Right. You know, and just feeling, uh, and missing her dad. Yeah. But I thought that conversation was, I think it was the show winking at us in a way because here you have this show that's about this like presumably multi-million dollar surveillance thing Mm -hmm. and this vast conspiracy. Right. And here is this person who like was able to unearth this person's big dark secret by just like doing a Google. Yeah. You know? And I think it was, it, it like undercuts the sort of intensity of the show. I thought in like a really, thinking about it now, like in a really funny way. Right. And I speaking to the idea of like, you don't need this vast surveillance machine watching you and knowing all your secrets there. We just live in like social media dystopia now. Right. Right. And everyone knows everything about you. And the, I I think, I hope what the show is trying to say is that it's an evolution of the ideas of secrets that were in Pretty Little Liars. And in Pretty Little Liars, like Allison says, you know, secrets can be used to bind you together, to make you family, Mm -hmm. you know, because you're keeping these secrets that nobody else knows. And this show is like a much more modern perspective of like how, what does the concept of a secret even mean? Because we know all the character secrets, like everybody already knows them. They're they're trying, they're living in this sort of, uh, denialists i mean they don't know everyone who knows but they're basically essentially in this denialist state of like all your stuff was on a phone it's all being passed around like there's no there's no secret well that's it's such a weird uh uh of the idea of intimacy in in a in a surveillance culture where you know no longer are you no longer are you bonded to other people by the revelation of who you really are because who you really are is is litigated through social media and so what actually draws you intimately towards other people these like secrets that you hold and um you know maybe those secrets are aren't actually secrets but if you believe that they're secrets then that's that's like that's your currency for intimacy with other people right right that's a great way to put it um that's i mean that to me strikes me as like being pretty interesting and rich and like a nice evolution, I think intentionally of the Mm -hmm. themes of PLL. So I'm excited to see the show examine that stuff. And, you know, I think we, we tend to being, uh, grown men, critical types. We're trying to look in, look for themes and look for like sort of deeper intent with the show versus just being like, Oh, Emerson broke up. I'm feeling the sads, you know, (laughs) but it's, it's there. I mean, that's what makes, uh, you know, Marley and a great creative person and what made PLL so great in its better moments is that there was like thematic depth. There was like oh, real absolutely. 
deep yeah. ideas about this stuff. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I think we only are hard on these shows because they're at their best. They're like really smart, affecting shows. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. We've seen their best. And so, so we want, we want to see that again. Well, if you, you know, if you're not willing to take three little liars, the perfectionist at its best or at its worst, you don't deserve it at its, uh, I don't know, gum wrapper. <laughs> um, you got anything else to say about this episode, Dave? No, it was good, and I don't watch any promos, so I have no idea what's happening next week. And um, I am excited to keep going and see if Allie's uh, RV blows up next week. Yeah, Roger Cumbles, I th- believe, is back for next week. What um, a perfect—literally— to direct a, a something about secret keeping college kids, mm-hmm. you could not come up with a better uh, a director with like a better resume than that. So that's really great. That makes me happy. He also directed Cruel Intentions too, uh, plus The Sweetest Thing, starring Cameron Diaz. Did you ever see that? Oh, I missed that one. That was on uh, Comedy Central, I believe, uh, a few times. But yeah, no, he's a he's a uh, uh, he's got a, a pretty good filmography. He's a talented guy. I'm glad the TV show is bringing on these people who seem to have a very good idea of what they want out of their episodes or what they want out of this TV show. They seem to all be on the same page as as far as like it feels like a pretty little liar show. It feels like their their established visual language is is, is pretty clear. You know the the intent of what they're doing is pretty clear. You know I don't know. Yeah, no, it's feeling it's feeling good. It's feeling smooth. Yeah, it feels like it's a well-oiled machine at this point. Yeah. I mean, I it, it was the same thing with PLL, where you would have an episode that really was able to knock out a lot of things and feel like a lot happened, but also you felt real emotional uh, energy in it and emotional stakes, and this episode did that really well. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, uh, it, when PLL would do this, you'd have two or three great episodes in a row, and then it would kind of, uh, you know lose some of that momentum. So we'll see what happens next week, but yeah. this one was nice and uh you know, it's nice to watch it and be able to say good things about it and get ready for the next one. Um and then uh you know, we can all sit together and wait until Hulu is inevitably folded into Disney Plus and uh just like we said before, the pretty little liars are going to become Disney princesses. Right. Well, it, you know, it is nice to be able to watch this on Hulu the next day. Yeah, exactly. Um uh thanks all for listening. Uh please remember to uh, I don't know, rate us, review us. Yeah, you can star us on iTunes and tell your friends to download the episodes and keep, find getting us on us, Twitter. keep getting us out into the podcasting world. We're yeah. on Twitter, at PLGM Podcast. It's really just Dom. He's the Twitter. <laughs> I don't log into that shit. Dave's got, Dave's got 14,000 followers to take care of. I do not have that many. Oh, man. I don't even... I've been so busy with work that... But even the, I, t- I think I tweeted like twice today, like my Twitter feed has really been, I would love to abandon it actually, because, uh, you know, it's a bit of an obsession and taking a break from it is nice, but it's <laughs> like, oh yeah. Who, who's you you got too many followers to, to just to abandon to, to just the abandon. universe like I, that. I think they'll be fine. I think <laughs> when somebody stops tweeting, I think you probably, most people don't even, if I took like a two month break from tweeting, I don't think people would even notice, you know? which is mm. fine. It's interesting to have accumulated followers from like basically doing a MP3 blog and then mm-hmm. screaming about politics for like two years oh, yeah. and now being, you know, doing uh, uh, web development and like systems engineering and just like tweeting about like 
you know, to the average person, like relatively obscure, like uh, computer apps, you know, <laughs> like who wants to talk about Ansible configuration? Like that's not a thing that any normal human is going to even know exists. I mean, it's, it's hard, man. With the, 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 the sad reality about Twitter is that its ecosystem is based now on such a being so extremely online that you can tell that people when people gain engagement because they are constantly engaging they're tweeting constantly they are responding to things constantly they are always 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 online and you either decide that that's what you want to do or you kind of just accept that you're not going to do that and that your role is relegated to the sidelines well, and I did that for a long time in like the music blogging era. And that was before the concept of like being extreme, like, you know, capital letters, like extremely online. Right. Right. Like that didn't, I was probably just a super annoying person. It wasn't like, it's weird because it is like a whole, there is like a whole class of like the media person who is very online mm -hmm. and tweets 300 times a day. And it makes me feel like, oh, okay, good. I'm not a crazy person. Right. Like there's lots of people who, uh, who are also also have this problem because <laughs> I don't think it's a healthy thing. And I don't even think it's really good for your career really, unless you, it, doesn't seem like that way it, it makes sense in the, if you are like a political pundit yeah. and then your entire economy is attention. But if you were like a music critic, like, I don't know. I mean, I ultimately like being someone who tweeted a lot, I don't think was really helpful to me mm -hmm. in my career it was more my actual work of like, being a pretty good blogger was way better. You know? I, don't, I honestly don't think that like it, it, only does Twitter help the rare person with their career. Otherwise I think that it's validating moment to moment, but ultimately it, I mean, I know so many people that have, you know, tens of thousands of followers who seem to be struggling with their career, like right. really struggling just right. to like pay basic bills. Um, which is, Someone, you know, and I have, I don't even have 900 followers, but I don't, I mean, I don't struggle. I don't, you know, I think that like that, that illusion is extremely uh, disorienting right. for a lot of people. Well, that, I think that's really just a condition of modern life in that yeah. you have these huge followings, but unless you are the person who literally has millions of followers mm -hmm. and can sell ads on that shit, right. if you have you know, me having 10,000 or whatever, 14,000 followers, you know, I, I, there have been many times where I tried to monetize that and just like wildly failed. Yeah. And it's like, you have to have such an intense scale because you're going to get like a 1% conversion rate on right, that. Right. So until you have a million people on there oh, and then you have 10,000 people who will give you money, it doesn't even matter. I mean, we, you know, you know I don't think it's any big, uh, uh, revelation to say that like you know i i posted a a, a um a poll on twitter through our uh, i mean through the plgm podcast twitter account which has 200 followers you know so it's not going to reach that many people but you know just we're we're thinking about this idea of like what if we wanted to monetize this podcast how would that look and the closest uh, thing that we have right now is patreon and i just people just don't want to pay like even if it's five dollars a month that adds up. People just don't want to pay for that well, shit. And I, yeah, I mean, I think uh, I just discovered. And that's fine, you know? Well, I just, you know, for me, the amount of energy that I can put into this podcast consists of like the 45 minutes we spend watching the show. Right. And the hour we spend chatting and yeah. the five minutes I take to upload it. Right. 
you know absolutely and if i thought that <laughs> and we could, done. if and that's great and i yeah. love it and yeah. i i'm you know t- getting the excuse to talk to you about stuff for an hour is great uh-huh. uh but you know if i thought we could get 10,000 followers. We could try to get onto mm-hmm. some web media thing and put ads oh, on yeah. this. Like that would be great. And I would put energy into it. But part of it is like, if we were in our twenties, like, and I was approaching this, like I did my music blog where I like threw myself at it for years, then absolutely. Mm-hmm. But being older and having other things to handle and other, uh, revenue streams, it's just like, I know how much work it would take and the odds of trying to get it to that level. And it's just like, I don't want to do that work. It's, I mean, it's, it's not worth it unless we had a lot of followers. If, if we got $5 a month per person and we got 50 followers. So, you know, that's, uh, but even then you're doing $250 a month, not even that much because Right. And then you end up, you know, cause I did a thing and we'll wrap up the episode after this folks, you can call it a day if you want. But, uh, <laughs> you know, when I was freelancing as a journalist, uh, like nine years ago, eight, nine years ago, uh, and I freelanced for two years before, um, getting my next moving up to Oregon and getting my next job. Uh, one of the things I did to try to make money was put together like a subscription club around right. Spotify right. where I basically, it was essentially a paid newsletter, yeah. uh, before the concept of the paid newsletter where I was charging people like five bucks a month and I would send out a weekly playlist and say, here's my picks for the week. Here's my favorite album. Here's an older album that I think influenced it or relates to it. Mm-hmm. Here's like my write up about it. And that was really fun to do. And if I was doing that in 2019, I could put it on like Substack or some of these new platforms right. and like probably be able to make a little more money on it. Yeah. But, you know, trying to do it without those tools made the accounting difficult. Uh, and, you know, I was a music, like a pretty successful music blogger who was able to get, you know, a 1, thousand, fifteen hundred people on my site every day for a while in the mid 2000s and ha- build a, a, what felt like a real readership, people who had me in their RSS. And, you know, trying to launch that. And, and cashing in on my musical opinions, you know, the most that ever had was like a hundred people on it at a time. Mm. And that was rare. Like it would go up to that and then it would go back down to like 70 or whatever it was, you know, because people would do it for three months and then drop off. And, you know, you're always going to have that kind of uh, rotation, but it's like, it just became to hit the mark of doing that every week in a good way for the level of money. It never hit the point where, okay, this is like a thousand bucks a month. This is actually paying for itself. Right. Right. Like this is something I can put more money into to keep growing. And I did it for probably like a year and a half or something. And it just never got to the point where the amount of money began to justify the labor. Mm -hmm. Uh, and you know, at some point you have to, you have to walk away from it because you know, you did it and it was great. And Mm -hmm. it just, it becomes a, you know, essentially a failed business. No, I, I mean, I think that's that's the situation that most of us are in, in all of these creative endeavors. How much is it worth to us um, if we aren't really looking forward to any sort of payout? I mean, and for us, it's worth us to do this once a week. Um, if we had any sort of sign that we could strive for something better, we'd probably go for it, but we don't, and so that's fine. You know, that's that's where we're at, and we're not. And I think it's it's, wor- it's worth it to be transparent about that because. This is a thing that takes time. Right. Well, and I like just doing it for fun. And I like the idea of like, this show is not 28 episodes. This is not like Fuck a... Fuck no. This is Thank not like God. a... It's not a giant commitment. We're doing, Seriously. We're doing this season because it's fun and it gives us a chance to hang out and have a beer or whatever. At the absolute least, we are doing 10 episodes. 
you yeah. know, maybe so we'll do good. a few more if we have time to do so. But, you know, we're committed to 10 episodes to talk about this TV show. And that's, yeah. that's so, fucking it. So we'll be here. And, you know, <laughs> I would love to do a movie podcast or a broader pop culture podcast. And, you know, I think there's room for that. And we could try to push it and get yeah. out there in the world. And, sure. you know, there's there's an audience for it. I think we... Pretty, we're like not bad at this, you know, we're, we're charming and smart, uh, you know, close, <laughs> exactly. Exactly just, as, just as much as anybody, there's <laughs> lots of, you know, there's, I've, I've heard these other podcasts. There's, there's a lot of <laughs> shitty podcasts out there, you know, agreed, but ultimately you have to be doing, you have to serve some kind of niche and maybe it's true crime or maybe you're an interview podcast. I mean, there's so many, I feel like there's 5 trillion of these podcasts where the whole podcast is just like someone interviewing celebrities. And or interviewing people about like their life hacking or whatever, you know? Oh yeah. And it's like how many pod, like I listened to the Tim Ferriss podcast for a while, which is interesting. And you know, I'm, but there's like five other podcasts like that or whatever. And it's like, how many times do you need to interview people who are very successful or, or how many conversations do you need to hear with just like random celebrities? You know, like I've listened to some Mark Maron episodes and when I check in when there's somebody who I really like on there, but it's like, you know, I don't need to listen to that every week. I don't need to be producing that. I don't know. It just feels like we're in this endless sea of content. And oh my God, yeah. unless I had a really passionate topic that I felt like I wanted to spend a lot of time on, you know, just trying to do it just to make a thing, just to try to get, build a business around it. I don't feel like the, the drive is there because I don't know. I don't have like a sort of, I don't want to start like a Marvel movies podcast like that to me would be the obvious thing oh, of the thing no. that I care about the most in pop culture. But I, yeah, I don't want to do that. Talk about being a wash in a sea of podcasts and content. But that's the thing is like, I think that's the reality of the situation is, is if you, if you want to, if you want to monetize this, if you want to make this an enterprise uh, worth pursuing or putting more effort into, you have to just sort of like blankly fall into it and crank out content constantly where you're, where like we're recording like three episodes a week. We put two episodes on Patreon and we have this one regular free episode. The two episodes we put on Patreon may be two, you know, commentary episodes or whatever, but we're, we're giving people, we're saying like, if you give us $5 a month, we are going to give you, you know, if we're doing two, two commentary episodes a week, that's, you know, eight, eight, eight episodes. Uh, and we're giving you eight extra episodes a week. So you're paying $5 a week for, essentially seven and a half hours of content or more. I mean, honestly, it's just uh, so much easier for me to spend an hour day trading. Well, right, this, that's the thing. It's like, <laughs> so, or we could just do this thing where it was just like, people just get this free episode every week and they know what they're getting. And that's that, you know? Right. right. I mean, part of it too, you know, for, for folks at home who maybe haven't uh, followed my internet exploits for 15 years or whatever. Uh, part of it too, is that like, I have tried to launch these things to actually monetize Mm -hmm. and to not just be like me on my blog or me on Twitter or whatever. And, you know, generally been unsuccessful and seeing the amount of labor that goes into it. It's like, don't really want to try to monetize my personality again or monetize my whatever audience again, just because I've tried and failed basically. And that's fine. And I went on and did other stuff, but it's like, you know, it's a hard business and I just don't feel like, I feel like we would almost be starting from scratch uh, to a degree. And it's like, eh, you know, it's there's just other ways to, there's just more, there's just nicer ways to make money than trying to do but that. The thing is if we're, if we're not, if we're not seeing any sort of like actual like monetary success, then 
it just becomes more of a chore. And I think that both of us have been in the situation where we've put our hearts into something and you have to constantly deliver. And even though you successfully deliver and feel proud of what you're doing, it gets to a point where you're just like, I don't want to do this anymore. This is exhausting and I'm tired and I don't feel like this is worth all the time that I'm putting into it. And you eventually have to decide that you either want to continue or you just want to stop. Right. Man, this is getting like real mid thirties existential right now. Yeah, well. um, but yeah, I mean, you know, we met, I don't know if people know this, but we met working on this website, Coke Machine Glow. Mm-hmm. And in the early two thousands, you know, it was even pre music blogs, uh, the webzine, the sort of volunteer or whatever webzine, uh, you know, I don't, I don't know if Pitchfork was paying at that time or not. I imagine they were paying somebody, but you know, Coke Machine Glow and Tiny Mixtapes and all these mm-hmm. things were around. Junk Media, which is a website no one remembers, Stylus, <laughs> all these websites Stylus, existed. Yeah. And it was all just, you know, young people finding places to be writing about music at, and not having to go through like sort of the uh, gatekeeping of Spin or Rolling Stone or whatever. Mm. And Coke Machine Glow was around for a long time. And, you know, I wrote hundreds of things for it. And you certainly, you know, as an editor, you were there a lot longer and mm. really till the bitter end, right? Yeah. And that was the thing where it was getting traffic. It had an audience. Everyone was working really, really hard to push mm-hmm. it over the top, you know, yeah. and it just never got there. No. And it just never got to the point of even being sustainable for even, um, the, I think, for the founder, Scott, to right. be able to make a living on it, you oh, know. No. And just like, I mean, it's 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 just like anything. It's just like trying to be like an actor or whatever, you know. There's somebody's going to make it and do great. But for that one person, there's you know, 500 other people who don't. And even the people who I think the issue with like American life right now and our, certainly in our era. And mm-hmm. I don't know, maybe since Reagan or whatever, even, uh, just the hollowing out of the middle class. And that applies certainly to creative worlds where maybe before you could be a band on K records and sell a thousand CDs and make a little bit of a living because you actually make some money from selling 10 grand in CDs. Right. And now, or 15 or whatever. And now it's like, if you don't get 5 trillion Spotify streams, no one is paying for music. So it's, it's becomes really, it wipes out the middle class and mm-hmm. it creates just these handful of superstars. And yeah, I don't know what the, in podcasting, if it's a rising tide kind of situation, and maybe there's hundreds of people making lots of money on podcasting. I have no idea, but it just feels to me like what you have to reach, the level you have to reach in any of these things mm. to make any money is so high versus, you know, having a real job or like learning about the stock market or, you know, all these, these other sort of more adult things you could be doing. That is exactly the conundrum that we face. And I think that uh, I would recommend people to go on to talkhouse.com and read an article written by director Alex Ross Perry about this uh similar conundrum in the movies movie distribution industry about just sort of like uh if you if you want to talk about classes within filmmaking and how most people in the lower class just have no hope whatsoever of like striking it uh big as far as like getting good distribution good budgets for their films and even people like Alex Ross Perry who have established himself enough to make a film that he would that he labels as middle class alongside the likes of First Reformed like Paul Schrader's most recent movie um that they're also doomed that there's movie distribution uh thanks to people like Netflix and 
Amazon is just, it's fucked. It's, irre- it's irrevocably fucked. And uh, you could apply that to any creative industry where, you know, like making a living off of this stuff. It's just, it's, the hope is just not there. Right. Well, and I think something, there was a great article in, I think, New York Magazine the other day that was an interview with like 17 indie rock bands, basically mm-hmm. touring yeah, bands. And it's really great. And it lets them speak in a very, you know, blunt way about mm-hmm. the financial difficulties of doing this stuff, uh, which people need the reminder of because we all spend 10 bucks a month on Spotify or Apple Music. And you have to realize that money just goes into the void. It doesn't yeah. go to, you know, indie rock, the indie rock bands you're listening to. Um, You're not supporting anybody. But something that uh, uh, I think Dude York said. Yeah, I saw uh, Dude York. Our friends Dude York, uh, (laughs) Seattle's finest. Something that I think Peter from Dude York said was that there are more gatekeepers and fewer gatekeepers than ever before. Mm -hmm. So you can use that to your advantage. And what I took my understanding of that was like it is easier than ever before to make a record on your own dime and put it out and be sort of like a musician who exists in the pop culture world Mm -hmm. and get press and have people listen to you on Spotify and sort of have this, what, what appears to be the facsimile of like an actual music career, but it's impossible to make any money on it. And that's an interesting position versus in the nineties where there are all these bands who made albums that people never heard that never got distribution. And that was sort of like the bottleneck to me, like the change of Napster was like one of the reasons why indie rock blew up in the two thousands was like, suddenly you could hear it. You didn't, Mm. it wasn't like you had to go to, uh, you couldn't go to Sam Goody and get it, but you could get it on Napster and everyone was sharing it. And there it Mm -hmm. was, you know, and that was like really part of the wonder of the whole experience of being a, a music pirate in the two thousands was like, whoa, I'm all these things I've never heard of. It's like this whole world opens up Mm -hmm. and now that's just like normal, which is amazing, but no one can make any money on it. It's like this weird, uh, you know, utopian dystopian binary. Oh yeah. We have access, but it's just like, you know, past even the sustainability of that economically. I don't know. I mean, I'm, I'm more in the loss of that discovery. I'm more in the loss of finding something that like really just feels special. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know the last time that I had that feeling that's something I discovered and with that let's end <laughs> well until next time <laughs> existential crisis bitches I know what you're keeping for you now.